Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Lisa Brennan was born with mild spina bifida and hip issues. In foster care, she left care age 18, as many do due to the support to their foster family being cut. But as she spent much of her life in a wheelchair, she found getting a place to live and a job nigh on impossible. Lisa has faced so much adversity, but has such an incredible spirit and story to tell. I can't wait for you to hear from her. And Brother Richard is a Franciscan friar. His poem Lockdown went viral during the pandemic. It led to his book Still Points, a guide to living the mindful, meditative way. And he joins me in studio to talk about the importance of making time for reflection. So usually at this time of the show, I say what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Look, it's good. I'm good. Battling on, ups, downs, same as everybody else. But I've decided this week not to prattle on about myself, even though when I do meet some of you lovely listeners to the show or the podcast of it, this is the part you always mention to me about my health and wellness week. And I truly believe in this power of a shared story. I promise I'm not just self-obsessed. But this week I want to read one of Brother Richard's poems. The book is so beautiful and peppered throughout it. But I decided to go with Lockdown, the one, as I mentioned, that went viral because it kind of encapsulates that moment of time that we all went through and the lessons we learned about kindness and nature. And sometimes I wonder now that we've kind of put the pandemic a little bit more behind us, whether we've forgotten that. So this is lockdown. Yes, there is fear. Yes, there is isolation. Yes, there is panic buying. Yes, there is sickness. Yes, there is even death. But they say that in Wuhan, after so many years of noise, you can hear the birds again. They say that after just a few weeks of quiet, the sky is no longer thick with fumes, but blue and grey and clear. They say that in the streets of Assisi, people are singing to each other across the empty squares, keeping their windows open so that those who are alone may hear the sounds of family around them. They say that a hotel in the west of Ireland is offering free meals and delivery to the housebound. Today, a young woman I know is busy spreading flyers with her number through the neighbourhood so that the elders may have someone to call on. Today, churches, synagogues, mosques and temples are preparing to welcome and shelter the homeless, the sick, the weary. All over the world, people are slowing down and reflecting. All over the world, people are looking at their neighbours in a new way. All over the world, people are waking up to a new reality, to how big we really are, to how little control we really have, to what really matters, to love. So we pray and we remember that yes, there is fear, but there does not have to be hate. Yes, there is isolation, but there does not have to be loneliness. Yes, there is panic buying, but there does not have to be meanness. Yes, there is sickness, but there does not have to be the disease of the soul. Yes, there is even death, but there can always be a rebirth of love. Wake to the choices you make as to how you live now. Today, breathe. Listen. Behind the factory noises of your panic, the birds are singing again. The sky is clearing. Spring is coming. And we are always encompassed by love. Open the windows of your soul. And though you may not be able to touch across the empty square, sing. So there we are. That is Lockdown by Brother Richard. I think it's impossible not to be moved by those words. And I think you're going to love what he has to say a little bit later in the show. I think we often, all of us, get a preconceived notion of what a Franciscan friar will be like and that it won't be like us. If that's you, I think you'll be surprised. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. 
Now, my next guest I met during the week, I am ambassador for Focus Ireland's Shine a Light Night, which is taking place this Friday when people across the country will sleep out to raise vital funds to end homelessness. I'm going to be sleeping out too. And I went to Focus Ireland's head office to meet Lisa Brennan, who is living proof that with the right supports, people can flourish and reach their true potential. She really inspired me with her attitude after much adversity and she joins me in studio now. Hello again, Lisa. Hi, Claire. Thank you so much for coming back. I've been thinking about our chat ever since. Thank you for having me. Um, Can you tell people a little bit, because it's radio now, so they won't see that you've joined us in a wheelchair. You were born with mild spina bifida and hip issues. So has that always been a part of your life? As far as back as you can remember, there have been issues with mobility. What impact did it have? Yeah, well, like you said, I was born with mild spina bifida. So when I was born, um, my mom was told that I wouldn't be able to walk or talk. Um, you know, I would have round-the-clock care. I pretty much wouldn't be able to do anything for myself. Um, when I was a day old, I had surgery on my back. Um, as every spina bifida person does to close up my back. And with the spina bifida came a dislocated hip from birth. And that didn't really affect me until I came into my teenage years where obviously the growth spurt and all the hormones and everything like that. So... That was when I started getting chronic pain in the hip and I actually didn't know that I had the dislocated hip until my teenage years when I went to hospital. So when I found that out, there was talk about getting a hip replacement, but I would have to wait until I was at least 21 years old because that's when you finish growing. So I was constantly in and out of hospital, um, sometimes bed bound. And in my early 20s, I got cellulitis in my hip for the first time. And I was hospitalised for just over a week and put on some very high medication and there was talk there and then about just doing the surgery Um, as the medication was working and the cellulitis was slowly but surely going away they decided not to do the surgery to leave it off Um, and then I ended up a year later getting cellulitis again um, this time, thank God, I wasn't hospitalised because we caught it just in time. So I was put on another course of antibiotics. Yeah, because it's a form of infection, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a skin infection. Um, I have a pretty high pain threshold, but this was the worst pain I've ever felt. And the second time that I was, sorry, the first time that I got it, I was bed bound. I couldn't get out of bed. I was just trying to sleep the pain away. It was just excruciating. Um, 
so thank God the second time we caught it just in time and there was a course of antibiotics. Um, when I seen my consultant about my hip, she he told me that because of the cellulitis problem, I wasn't eligible for the hip replacement anymore. So then I was given deci- the decision at 22, I think it was, either I could keep my hip and be in pain for the rest of my life and probably have ongoing cellulitis or remove the hip and never walk again and there's a possibility I would be pain-free. Not a guarantee, possibility. And from what your mum was told from you as a baby mm. to what you actually achieved really defied the odds. I mean, obviously you're you're talking now. Yeah. Um, and you had mobility, so you mm. would have a wheelchair some of the time, but you were walking and, and, and moving about. So yeah, it was would, a big deal. Yeah, I would use crutches to get around. Um, and that was very important to me growing up because that was my independence. I've always been a very independent person and I wouldn't like to just sit in a wheelchair and not get out and be mobile if I am able to. So I was really lucky to be able to get out and be able to be mobile. So at 22, you had to make that decision Mm. and ultimately you decided, I'm sure impacted by the pain you went through to say, I'm going to go for a chance of less pain and I'm going to take the the wheelchair. Yeah, so I went for the surgery um, in the end and it was a really big decision. But to me, it was, I wasn't going to let something define me and I wasn't going to let it take over my life like even though I had my hip removed and now I can't walk anymore I'm still able to get out I'm still able to work I'm still able to be as independent as I can be whereas if I was to go the other route and not take the surgery and be in pain I wouldn't be anywhere as near as independent as I am now. Yeah, if you're going to be bed bound and you're going yeah. to have to remove yourself from life yeah. at certain times, mm. although it is a challenge, but challenges have been throughout your life running parallel to all of this. You've been in care since the age of four yeah, in residential settings with foster families. And at 18, with the way our system runs, that support ends. Yeah. Now, I left home at 18. I was very fiercely independent also. How did you feel at that time to sort of head out? Were you keen for independence or was that a a tricky transition? Oh, I always said that the minute I turned 18, I was gone. I was out on my own. I wanted to live my life the way I wanted to live it. I didn't want to have to answer to anybody just myself so the idea of it was amazing but obviously when you come to it and you are out on your own it's nothing like what you think it's so much harder Um, I did have an aftercare worker 
um, who was supporting me when I first moved out and went to private renting. And she was amazing. She really was. Um, she really bent over backwards for me. And I feel like if I didn't have her, things would have went a lot worse, a lot faster. Because you needed accessible accommodation um, yeah. because the wheelchair was part of your life. Even the crutches, you know, there were certain things that you definitely needed. And that's what you came up against. It was very difficult for you to find suitable accommodation. Yeah. My apartment, when I first moved out of my foster home, my first apartment by myself wasn't a ground floor. It was, I think it was a third floor, but there was obviously a lift um, thank God there was never any problems with the lift there. So it wasn't too much of a battle in living in there. And you also wanted to have a job, obviously, to pay your own way. Yeah. But you were finding not only were some landlords wary of what might happen if that there was health and safety concerns. Yeah. Um, you were finding with employers there was also a wariness around hiring somebody who needed accessibility. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think there's such a stigma with people in wheelchairs um, that will they be able to carry out the work? Will they need extra um, aids? What will we have to do? What if there was an accident? You know, there's a lot of things that come with it. Um, I applied every day for two years for a job and the best that I could do was a CE scheme. You also came up against an issue that the landlord needed the apartment back yeah. and trying to look for somewhere, even a temporary hostel that was accessible was proving almost impossible. So you had to mm. declare yourself homeless you began working with Focus Ireland and not only have they been able to find you a place to live that you can call your own, that you're now a tenant in, but through their preparation for education, training and employment, you now have a job in childcare. I do. And you're 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 loving that, aren't you? I do. I love my job. I've always seen myself working with kids. Um, I just think they're amazing and... I, I really like it, yeah. And they operate, you know, because what you were saying about employers there, they should see the person first Absolutely. and the disability second, be it a wheelchair, crutches, mm. neurodiversity, whatever it is. And kids do that, don't they? Kids yeah. see Lisa. Yeah, they do. They also see the wheelchair, but it's, they want to know why. They want to be educated on it. And I I never have a problem with explaining to a child. Obviously, I don't go into the whole medical side of it. I'll just say something simple like, oh, um, my bones aren't as strong as yours when I was born. So that's why I'm in a wheelchair. And they're just amazed to see it. And I also think it's really important to have diversity in a childcare setting. Because it's teaching them from a young age that not everybody is the same and not everybody looks the same or talks the same. And it's making it 
okay for them to see this and it's not strange when they when they're growing up and it's not oh what's wrong with this person or whatever it may be yeah I totally agree and I I put up a a picture of the two of us on the day on my social media and I said can we just live in a world where we are more inclusive where we do have more accessibility and where there is fear or misunderstanding let's just ask the questions and get to know let's not be afraid yeah in my job at the moment that's the one thing I said to my colleagues, to my um, managers, I said, if you have a question, ask me. You're never going to offend me. I'm not one of those people. You can't offend me by asking me a question. I actually welcome questions because, like I said, there is such a stigma when it comes to disabilities and wheelchairs. Just because I'm in a wheelchair if another person in a wheelchair came into the centre, that doesn't mean that we have the exact same problem and we're a- we're not able to do the exact same thing and we are able to do the exact same thing. Everybody's different. So by asking questions, I think you learn more of what people are capable of rather than just seeing a wheelchair and saying, OK, well, they're not going to be capable of this or this is going to be hard for them or they're not able to do something else. So people hear how strong, resilient, positive you are. Where do you think that comes from? Because you've hit so many adversities. I know so many people do in life, but not everybody comes back the way you have. Um, I just, I don't think giving up is an option for me. I just think there's so much to life and I really want to see a change and there's not going to be a change if nobody speaks up. Well, I am delighted to give you a platform on this radio show. It's an honour to spend time with you again. You have inspired me, informed me and educated me and it's a pleasure to know you. I hope we will continue to see each other now that we know each other, Lisa Brennan. Thank you so, so much for coming on. So look, as I said at the beginning, you can hear with the right supports, people can truly flourish. For more information, you can go to focusireland.ie. I have a link in the bio of my Instagram page with my personal fundraising page. Lisa, I'll see you again on the Shine a Light night. It's taking place on October 14th. And thank you again for talking to me today. Continued success to you. Thank you, Claire. Now, Brother Richard is a priest friar of the Irish Capuchin Franciscans. For over 20 years, he has taught meditation and mindfulness across the country. With degrees in philosophy, theology and English literature and postgrad qualifications in pastoral and holistic studies, he is well versed in the qualification and the practice of spirituality. His poem, which I read earlier, Lockdown, went viral during the pandemic and thrust him into the spotlight as people were drawn to his way with words. This way has led to a book, Still Points, a guide to living the mindful, meditative way. And Brother Richard joins me now. Hello there. How are you? Hi, it's good to be with you today. I've been telling you that I have been immersed in the book over the last two to three weeks. I've really enjoyed the journey that it has brought me on. 
How have you found the journey of it? Because I know you never really intended for your poem to go viral. Perhaps you never had the intention of writing a book and yet all this has happened. How have you been finding that? Yeah, it's been quite the journey uh, from the moment that the poem went viral. I mean, I'd been using social media for gosh, maybe about 10, 12 years before then, just as a way of uh, inviting people into deeper moments of reflection, you know, using uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all of those things. At that time, I was working mostly with um, colleges and secondary schools. So if you wanted to create little oases of meditative moments for them, that's where they lived. That's where they were. So hence, I was, was kind of putting the writings out on that. And some of them were popular, some of them went around a bit and that was fine, but nothing prepared me for for lockdown. Um, It was a poem that arrived out of my own meditation on trying to find the good, even in the midst of the the chaos and the tragedy of that that sort of opening act of the the pandemic worldwide. Um, I put the poem up, I went to bed and I woke up to a different, different world in the sense that the phone had nearly exploded and there were there were thousands and thousands of, of uh, likes and retweets and reposts and all of that kind of stuff. And um, to some extent, it's still out there. It's still journeying. Um, and it was after that then that um, a couple of publishers got in touch and said, look, you know, you seem to have um, uh, at least touched the zeitgeist with this poem. We'd like to see your other writings. And, and I actually held off for about a year uh, in terms of doing anything because for us as as monastics, as as friars, um, it, it's it's not about us as individuals. It's not about the ego. It's not about wanting to be famous. It's not about wanting to do anything other than uh, ask the question, well, do my words improve on silence and do they help people deepen their own inner awareness? And after about a year of praying with it and getting advice on it and meditating on it myself, I decided I would, I would um, kind of release something into the wild and that's been the journey so far. And before we get into the book itself, can I ask about your story and what led you to sure. a life of service? Sure. Um, well, I suppose at this stage, it's 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 kind of a potted story. But I, at about 15, 16, I was heading towards leaving CERT at that stage. Um, I was uh, very interested in the sciences, particularly the natural sciences. I was My plan as such was to, to study biology and then later to specialise in zoology. Um, and I was also, though, asking the kind of questions about meaning, you know, what, what's it all about, really? Um, what, what is a human life? What's the goal of the life? Um, and they might sound very deep and big questions for a 15 year old to be asking. But I'd always been someone who'd read very widely, was very interested in thoughts and in, in what people thought in the ways of kind of faith and spirituality um, belonged to your ordinary Dublin middle class 1980s Catholic home, um, you know, mass and the sacraments were part of life, but it wasn't an overly devotional experience. It was just the norm. Um, And so in the midst of all of that, somebody somewhere, and to this day I cannot remember who, gave me a book on the life of St. Francis of Assisi. And it was like something just clicked in that moment. Um, reading his life, uh, most people, most of your listeners would know him kind of as the nature saint, you know, someone who's very associated with the animals and with, with plants and with birds. And in fact, he's the patron saint of ecology um, and has been used by the current Pope uh, as a way of sort of uh, inviting people to uh, better care of our, of our common home, um, a kind of an awareness of, of the, the various kind of crises that the world is under. And, and sort of looking at the Franciscan model as a way of restoring that or healing that. But at the time, for me, he spoke primarily around um, the idea of living a life of meaning, a life of service, but also a life of joy. 
uh, that it was possible to live a deep contemplative life and for that not to be the kind of serious, sour-faced uh, spirituality that sometimes we can all be confronted with, but instead uh, a life of service that actually resulted in joy. So I wanted to know more about him. Um, no Google, no internet in those far off distant days. And uh, I went to the library and I kind of read more and researched more and took out the phone book and found that there were actually these creatures called Franciscans still living in the world and that there were some in Dublin. So I got in touch with the Capuchin Friary. The Capuchins are a branch of the Franciscans. Um, got in touch with the friary in Church Street in Dublin 7 and began my journey from there. And when you put it that way about a life of joy and meaning, it seems ridiculous to throw in the stereotypes of what you may have sacrificed. But do you ever feel that, particularly for a young teenager, to think about ending social life and, you know, all all the other trappings of, of life. Was that sure. something you had to, to grapple with or were you just well, really pulled course, in that direction? Of course, and you, and you grapple with it daily, you know. I, I think there, there is no human life without sacrifice. There's no human life whereby if you make the choice to go left, you've given up the choice to go right, you know. And, and so one of the things that, that is part of the training, part of the formation uh, within our way of life is really taking time to look at um, what you are giving up, what you are choosing and and what um, what various kind of uh, strategies and ways of living uh, will allow you to, to enrich even those areas of life that, that you might be um, seen as, as, as giving up. So, OK, we don't live family, but we do live community and brotherhood. You know, we don't live um, maybe the kind of social life that most people live, but we are we are very social. And I mean, I have plenty of friends and, and, and family and connections that that certainly connect to us in that way. And, and again, the other thing is we don't regard our way of life as better than any other way of life. It's just one particular way of life. It's not saying that the married person or the single person isn't going to find you know, profound meaning or service in their way of life. They absolutely will. It's just that this is the way that so far for me has felt like where I need to be or where I should be. And that's one of the things for us as well, is that even though we we commit, we have a vow ceremony, like, like a marriage ceremony in the same way, where we commit to the way of life, it's a way of life that begins again every day. And, and you know, it's, it's not... Um, it's not that we're, we're closed to the surprises that God may bring us along the way or, or show us along the way. The most important thing for us is that each day begins with, with a, a moment of deep contemplation, deep awareness and deep renewal. And you're not the youngest brother in the village. No. <laughs> there are still men coming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've, we have a steady, a steady trickle of, of those who come. They come a bit later than, than the time I, I came at. So when I was coming in, the average age was around 18, 19, who were beginning to look at, look at, at the way of life. Um, nowadays, it would be mid-20s onwards. And we actually wouldn't take somebody that young because the, the general feeling amongst ourselves, as well as in society, is that, you know, points of emotional maturity, stages of emotional maturity have changed. And particularly for young men, it has to be said, most of them are only really reaching the level of maturity where a decision like that would be possible into mid to late 20s. So let's talk about still points then. Sure. Firstly, can we talk about stillness and, and what the definition of that is? Sure, sure. Well, I think for most people, it's a word that frightens them. Uh, stillness, because we live in such an active world and we're, we're so reactive and we're receiving so much um, input and stimuli all of the time that, that when you say to somebody, you know, quietness, stillness, solitude, it terrifies most people. 
um, uh, you know, how many people go off into the woods for their quiet time or go off, you know, on a holiday, going to have quiet time. And the phone is still in the hand and, the, you know, the, all of the, the input is still, is still being, being received. What we mean by stillness is simply receiving the moment as it is. That's all. Accepting the moment as it is. Uh, and so when you enter into that, the first thing you notice is that there is a certain amount of stimuli in every moment. I'm sitting here, I can feel my feet on the floor, I can feel my back on the chair, I'm speaking to you, I'm taking in the various sensory experiences that are there. But if I really want to be aware, if I want to touch stillness, then that's all I need to be aware of. I don't need to be thinking about what I'm doing afterwards. I certainly don't need to be thinking about what I was doing a few minutes ago. Um, if you want to receive the best of me and if I want to give the best of you in this moment, then I enter into an inner stillness that allows this present moment to open up in all its possibility. And that's all that stillness is, touching the present moment with awareness. And what about the distractions that you touched on there? I mean, they're in your life too. Of People course. will be fascinated to hear that you're on social media. That's how the whole poem yeah. started. Yeah. So online news, WhatsApp groups, you have all of that too. Yeah. It's not like you live in a monastic bubble. No, no. But I think I think one of the things we have to do is to look at our choices. Are, are we subject to all of these things or are we using them, you know? Um, and for a lot of people, if they stand back and take a little moment to think, they discover that for a lot of the time, they're actually, you know, the subject in, in that experience, that relationship with it. You know, we, we wake in the morning, the very first thing we do is reach for content. We reach for the phone. We reach for, for you know, what's happened? What have we missed? What has been going on? You know, um, and sometimes we're missing what's actually there in front of us. We're missing the joy of the cup of coffee or we're missing the gentleness of waking up or we're missing even worse, the presence of the people who are around us and who actually make up our family or our partnership or our marriage or whatever it might be. And so our life becomes a series of mismeetings. You know, we're always in the past, we're always in the future or always somewhere else. So where the distractions are, are, are concerned, it's not that we're trying to get rid of them all because you can't. You can wall yourself up in a, in a room all by yourself with no stimuli and your brain will do enough all by itself to distract you. What we're saying is that the distractions when they are considered from a place of peace, from a place of stillness, we can then begin to actively choose what are the distractions that, that are actually calling us to a deeper way or a deeper being? So if my partner or my child is in need of me, that's not actually a distraction. That's a call to a deeper way of living. But is the phone with the multitudinous WhatsApp groups or the, the, um, the, the bombardment of Twitter notifications, is that actually deepening me? Or is it, is it just distracting me and, and keeping me out of the moment, out of my own life? So there's an element of choice and discernment that stillness allows that otherwise we're just living kind of reactively towards. And it has to be something that you prioritise and set time for, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, you, you do speak in the book a lot about meeting yourself where you're at, that there is no judgment, there is no expectation, because I think that's something... Yeah people get overwhelmed at the thought that they have to sit on a cushion for two hours Absolutely. and see what happens. Shave the head and climb the mountain. Yeah, no, I mean, the most important thing is for people to begin from where they simply are at. So whatever you're doing right now, you know, if you're listening to this, just listen. If you're having the cup of coffee, just have the cup of coffee. And it's not that you, you, you have to be, live like that all the way, all the time. The idea is, and that's why we called it still points, to, to place points in your day, whether it's one or two or five or ten or however many you need, but points that allow you to recover the awareness of your inner self. 
so that you're actually touching that inner reality day by day, moment by moment and growing from it, learning from it, living from it rather than living from all of the suppositions of others, all of the prejudices of others, all of the the opinions of others. Absolutely listen to them, be aware of them. But to really ask yourself, you know, most people go through the whole day without actually asking the question, how am I? And it's, it's the most profound question of all. How am I in this moment? It's a very simple thing. Because once we actually are aware of that, then what we'll find is even anxiety levels begin to go down. Because a lot of that anxiety is generated by the fact that we're, we're missing ourselves and we're missing others. Uh, if I ask myself, how am I? If I'm aware of how I'm breathing, aware of how I'm sitting, aware of how I'm uh, present to you in this circumstance or to anyone else, then there's a kind of a reset takes place in that moment. And it's the possibility then of actually being fully present and moving on. And it's not that that's going to be the way all the time. Uh, what's important is to begin, as I said, with, with placing a few points in your day. And that's where the phone can be a great help. Put the reminders on the phone, you know, the reminder to breathe, the reminder to, to be present, the reminder to, to take the walk and, and occasionally take the walk without the podcast or without the earphones in, just to take it and to see what's your neighbourhood like? What's your, what, what are the trees like? What are the seasons like? One of the questions we used to ask young people when we'd, we'd uh, be with them was to say to them, you know, what's the moon doing at the moment? And it was fascinating to discover how many of them had no idea that the moon changes, that there are phases of the moon, that there are, you know, that there are seasons. What's in the sky at the moment? What's the weather like? What are the trees doing at the moment? Um, and it's good for us to look up occasionally from our screens and just to take in what's actually going on. And if we're doing that in a few times a day, those little points become, it's like join the dots. They become, they become points of connection and slowly the spaces between them become filled with awareness as well. Yeah. And even when you're sitting having that coffee and your mind wanders as it will, sure. it's the bringing it back. That's the flexing of the muscle that uh, you're looking to absolutely, do. Absolutely. Yeah. We speak of it as the, as the meditation gym. You know, if, you, if you're going into the gym trying to build up the biceps and you just pick up the weight and never put it down again, all you end up with is a withered arm. The, 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 the muscle is built by the picking up and the putting down, the picking up and the putting down and the constant repetition of that. Your mind is a muscle in exactly the same way. So if you want to flex focus, if you want to flex attention, if you want to actually build that interior awareness, then the distraction is actually part of that because that's the putting down. And then we notice the distraction. And then this is the most important, without judgment of the distraction and without emotional attachment to the distraction, we simply smile at ourselves and we return to the focus. And if we do it that way, then over time, and it takes time, like any muscle building does. But over time, we will find our focus and our attentiveness grows. I did read an interview you gave to one of the Sunday papers oh, about yeah. the book. And you were talking about a, a lady who had said to you, what am I supposed to do with all this awareness? You know, yeah. I used to just be somebody she had a, was it a, an illness or chronic pain? And she said, now all I am is aware of the chronic yeah, pain. Yeah, it was, yeah, her 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 words and it, they were very proud, profound words were, were um you know, uh, I came to the, to the meditation course to get away from my brokenness. And now I am simply aware that I am broken. And that's actually a really important point. And it sounds awful, you know, people, they'd want to run from that. But actually, the important thing is that she had discovered that there was the brokenness, the condition, the experience she was going through. But there was also the I, and I don't mean the organ of sight, I mean the I, the, the, the personal I, that was separate from the experience. And when that happens, it is a profound shift for any human being to discover 
that there is an individual, there is a consciousness, there is, in our tradition, we'd call it the soul, but whatever you want to call it, there is a, a personal intelligence and awareness that is separate from the external stimuli I am receiving, whether that's even stimuli from within my own body in the case of illness. And that means then that I become slightly more detached from those from those experiences, those stimuli, and I begin to be able to distill wisdom and growth and healing and presence uh, for, from that. So, the older languages are much better at this. Unfortunately, in English, we say things like, I am happy, I am angry, I am sad. And we're defining our being by the emotion. Whereas if you go to something like Irish, it says, which means sadness is on me at the moment. Happiness is on me at the moment. And the understanding is there is a landscape over which the weather of emotions flows, but the landscape remains. In the old Zen tradition, they used to say, you know, be like the mountain, you know, sit with, with your rooted properly, with the understanding that the emotional life and the fluidity of life is, is simply the weather coming and going. In the Christian tradition, they, they use the image of um, what they call the logismoi, uh, which are your, your thoughts are like a cloud of mosquitoes around you. If you give attention to them, you'll feel the biting and you'll get distracted. But if you sit still long enough, eventually they lose their energy and they disappear. So I think what, what's really important for people to begin to recognize is that inner presence, that inner self that's actually separate to the stimuli that are out there, receives them. It's not that we want you to be detached and floating above them, but receive them and then also ask of yourself then, what are they teaching me in that moment? Yeah, there's a power to step away from the overwhelm and the consumed. Yeah, absolutely. To be the observer yeah. and the learner, as you say. Yeah. And the book is set in seasons. Mm. Why did you go with with that idea? Well, the, it, it comes from, again, an older, much older idea, which is the almanac. You know, the almanac was the book that hung on the gardener's wall and that told you what to, to look out for in each season and what to do in each season so as to make the most of it. And this is a meditative almanac. It moves through the four seasons. Um, and, and some people have been astounded that we begin with winter and we end with winter. Um, because one of the things we wanted to avoid it was that idea of, you know, the self-help book that says on the 1st of January, you're your new perfect self, because that just simply isn't true. Or at least it's not true by the 3rd of January for most people. Um, so the seasonality of it is the idea that we're actually called to live in communion with the natural world and its rhythms. So there will be forms of meditative consciousness and, 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 and tasks and, and ways of being um, that are present in the summer months that maybe aren't, aren't as well received in the winter months and vice versa. Um, a lot of the great meditative traditions, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc., uh, always set the winter months aside for deeper practice, for deeper resting, deeper stillness, because that's what nature is doing in those months as well, you know. And, and uh, unfortunately, we've, we've sort of in the West arrived at, at a place where we kind of say summer is good and winter is bad. And that characterization then can even um, begin to affect our own emotional life and our emotional stability within those seasons. So I wanted to show the richness of the seasons. I wanted people to actually feel um, in communion with, you know, our brothers and sisters, as St. Francis would say, the sky, the sun, the moon, the birds, the trees, the animals, etc. Because they also are teachers. They show us how to be mindful. Nothing is more mindful than an animal. It's, it's always in the present moment, you know. Um, and so when we meditate on them or are present with them, we begin to be drawn into this deeper, more natural, more kind of original consciousness that, that is present. The second thing we did with it as well was we also um, structured it so that the major feasts of the Christian year 
um, are, are received. So, Because a lot of people have lost touch with, with those um, parts of our culture, parts of our history. So things like Halloween, for example, had a very, very deep um, meaning for the people that lived it. It wasn't just about the trick-or-treat or the masks or the, or the, the bonfires. There was a meaning behind all of those things. And if we begin to touch that again with, with the, um, the light of awareness, with the light of inner awareness, those feasts and moments and times can actually enrich us and give us a much more um, paced following of the year. I mean, if you go into the shops at the moment, it's what, uh, 1st of October um, today as we're recording this, and, and you begin to, to look at, at um, uh, the, the shops and, and there you go. It's, it's Christmas already as far as they're concerned. You get a mishmash of Christmas and Halloween and everything else together. Whereas the natural world and the old meditative way of looking at it gave us a whole season of kind of moving into autumn, giving thanks for the harvest, moving through the harvest into an awareness of the earth going into its sleep, meditating on on death and being aware of the ancestors and then finally beginning to look towards the coming of the light, the the winter uh, solstice and then finally towards Christmas. It's a much more beautiful, paced, gentle way of, of moving. Instead, most of us arrive at Christmas and we're exhausted and worn out already and we haven't had those moments to pause, moments to breathe. So the hope is the book will actually invite people into a more paced and rhythmic way of living. And because I am so immersed in the world of, of health and wellness through this show and, mm. and through my own personal endeavours, I see a real yen for people for the more spiritual and the more mm. ritualistic that you're talking about, sure. people gathering for all these sort of ceremonies. Mm. And particularly here in Ireland, so many people have begun to move away from organised religion. But mm. do you think it's perhaps to someone's detriment to remove all moments of spirituality along with that, for whatever sure. reason brought them to that decision. Sure. Well, I'd say, you know, we, we have been through a very tumultuous and tragic history over the last number of years, um, the last decade, really. Um, and a lot of that has had to do with our, our way of being spiritual and our way of being religious. But I think it's important that when we look at the overall tradition uh, the nearly 2,000 years worth of Christianity, which was built out of and grew out of a 4,000-year-old Jewish tradition as well, there is inevitably wisdom in how people have lived um, the search for meaning in that particular way, just as there's wisdom in the other traditions as well. And I think what's important for people is, is to recognize that, you know, maybe don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sit with the practices themselves. Sit with the teachings of the holy ones, the the the, the saints, the, the the mystics. Sit with the, the ability of spirituality and ritual to connect us back to ourselves and to the natural year, uh, and and then begin to decide um, how you want to to live or to move. I mean, this this book is not meant to convert anybody. It's meant to invite people to deepen how they are living already, and if it does that, I'm happy. Well, it certainly did that when I read it. So thank you for your words. You do have a beautiful way with them. It's filled with your with your poetry. Um, and I really enjoyed the way you write and the message that you shared thank in you. the book and here today. The book is called Still Points. Brother Richard, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and Hugo De Silva who was on sound and thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.